previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. As a person who lives in <laughs> Delaware, who's from the Eastern Shore of Maryland, I don't care about LeBron James. I don't care yeah. about Golden State. I don't care about half of the other teams in the NFL. Set your coordinates and lock in your location because it's time for the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the meeting place to talk sports, pop culture, and everything in between. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Sports Refuge Podcast. I'm your host, Earl Holland. This is the weekly show where I talk with guests about their connection to sports. As a journalist, there's an old adage that goes, I was told that no math would be involved. But in this episode, we'll do exactly that as we delve into the mathematical and analytical side of sports with this week's guest, Mark Demora. Demora's lengthy resume includes a bachelor's degree in physics and a master's degree in business administration from Salisbury University, in addition to an internship with NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Currently, Demora, who also minored in mathematics, is the Somerset County 4-H agent associate for the University of Maryland Eastern Shore Extension. Mark and I will attempt to differentiate what's a sport, a game, a competition, and events that fall into multiple categories. We'll also discuss his interest in poker and how mathematics can be beneficial in this and many other card games. We'll also get into the subject of sabermetrics in baseball and whether it can accurately predict future performance. And we'll have a discussion on Bond, James Bond. And now, here's my interview with Mark Demora. This week's interview is with a good friend of mine. I've known him since college, my time at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. I know, stop me if you heard that before, but I've known Mark Demora for close to 20 years. I know sometimes you got to estimate a little up, but it's been close to 20 years. Wouldn't you say so, Mark? Can you believe how fast time flies like that? 15, 20 years go by now in a snap of our finger. When we were that age, we thought that was an eternity. <laughs> yeah, and I think the biggest thing is the older we get... As you mentioned before, time flies. and Time flies. As we get older, back in the day, I always thought a year was like a huge period of time. You're like, what am I going to be doing next year? Now a year is just like, eh, it's next year. It's another birthday. <laughs> we don't celebrate birthdays as much as we used to. At least I don't think we do. I think milestone birthdays, after a certain point, you don't try to celebrate them anymore. For yeah. 40 is going to be the next milestone for me. Mm-hmm. 40 is going to be the next milestone for both of us. You always tend to have bigger shindigs and, you know, I always did for birthdays, though. You know, we always go somewhere for your birthday, which is awesome. And so we have fun and we get to do stuff. And I think that's great. You know, you have some pocket of the year you look forward to to do something fun with your gang and you enjoy it for what it is. And it's you kind always of- hold down December and Christmas time. So at least that part's mm-hmm. book ended. And I guess New Year's as well. I almost forgot about it. It feels like New Year's is just mm-hmm. a continuation of the Christmas holiday. I mean, it really is, too. So much stuff takes place in that two-week span. I mean, it's why schools don't even really have class for sometimes two or three weeks at a time. Like, I wouldn't know about that, right, Earl? (laughs) I can't think of any other holidays that are so close to each other. Everything's branched out. Everything's bunched out. February, if you count Valentine's Day, and you don't count President's Day. The only one I can think of is that sometimes that government and the schools give you a week off for, like, Easter. But it's like, and then there's Passover, and there's that subset of holidays. And unless you want to count April Fool's Day, depending on how Easter lands, <laughs> and that, that spawns another discussion. There's really no other time of year in which the holidays fall so close together like that, which is why I guess you don't see a lot of outside of Christmas or the holiday stuff. You don't see anything else but during that two week period because it's like a marathon of holidays. 
Yeah. I feel like with the month of February, you're going to either celebrate one or the other. You're going to either celebrate Valentine's Day and not care about President's Day, or you're going to celebrate President's Day and not care about Valentine's Day. Yeah. And of course, that might be dependent upon if you're single or with somebody, because if you're with somebody, you're going to be more prone to celebrate Valentine's Day. Isn't that right, Earl? Oh, yeah. Now, you majored in physics. Am I right? You got it. Physics major, minor in mathematics. Can you believe that was 10 years ago? I graduated 10 years ago. Anyhow, proceed. <laughs> so you've majored in physics, you minored in mathematics, and you mm. have your MBA as well. That's a very big accomplishment, especially mm. math is such a very tough subject. I was never wired that way. I know some people are wired more towards math right. and science. Others are towards the arts. Right. Yeah, it's how your brain is wired. Some people, you know, it's the same thing for like anything. Some people are wired for math and science. Some people are wired for writing and the communications, and that's how your brain is wired. And they're two very distinct sections of the brain. They've done a lot of research on this. And so it's just, again, what we get exposed to as kids, you know, our genetics give us our natural inclination for it. Thank God in my mind because I enjoy being, you know, math savvy. So yeah, I'm happy that at least my experience, my genetics turned me that way. I'm sure you're very happy that it took you towards the broadcasting and writing way. And the thing is, I was exposed to math and science a lot. I can retain the information of certain mathematical and scientific things, but putting them in practice, Mm -hmm. no way possible. And that again, that's just how the brain is wired. And some people are very, very gifted and they can can do a little bit of all of it. But, you know, it just boils down to brain development during certain cycles of your youth. So it's interesting that I don't claim to be an expert at it at all, but most of my friends are not as math and science heavy as I am. Most of my friends, as you know, Earl, because we run in the same circles. communications and the artistic side of things you know we have a lot of friends who are amazing singers and writers and all that kind of thing and so i'm kind of the one that sticks out but i think that's why we all get along we all have our own clique that we're good at and we can feed off each other very well you know when i think of people that are very talented in all aspects i always go back to the comic books and i look at hank mccoy beast in the x-men he's a gifted chemist uh he knows a lot of physics he's very good at math he reads shakespeare and things like that that's probably the most mm-hmm. accomplished, well, maybe Lex Luthor as well, but but the most accomplished comic Absolutely. book character when it comes to being the most well-rounded. Or what about Tony Stark? I think of Tony, because you think we're talking about Renaissance people, Renaissance men and women. You know, I think of Tony Stark first myself, but I am not as big of a comic book fan as you are, so I could be very off there. <laughs> and that's the thing. I am not as big into comic books. I just watch so much and would read up on a lot of them. I think Tony Stark is definitely a very good businessman. Scientist. And he was a good scientist and as business. well. That's where I think Tony Stark has the edge on Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne's a very good businessman. Yeah. And I was reading him. Tony Stark would continuously lose his company's power plays and things like that. He would start yes. a new company and build one. Up. He, I think he's built up like five or six different companies in the Marvel Universe. And anybody who listens, who reads comic books, who's more into it, let me know. Mm-hmm. I'm close to that number. I might be a little off, but just reading up, he's created a number of different companies after just sort of being kicked out of his company. The mm-hmm. opposite of Ted Turner, I guess, in that case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and actually, I fully forgot about that point, but you're right. I do remember that he had at least a couple of companies and then lost them. You were talking about the X-Men series and uh, Beast. It made me think of the X-Men cartoon from the 90s. Especially First exposure to the X-Men, really, and really just comic books. That in Fantastic Four cartoon, you know, Saturday morning. That was really my first exposure to the to comics in general. <laughs> Being exposed to those cartoons gave me a little bit more of a greater appreciation of comic books. And I was so intrigued about trying to find out some of these characters 
Like, mm-hmm. for example, I assume a lot of people who read comic books, everybody knows that Hank McCoy wasn't always blue and furry. He mm-hmm. was human. He just had large hands, large feet. He was human. As a result of a couple of experiments, he had been experimenting around with something and it would allow him to transform mm-hmm. into a furry creature, but he did not get the antidote in time and he remained like that permanently and then underwent a couple of different mutations as he went along. One became more cat-like and then yeah. one was more ape-like later on. Mm-hmm. But Beast is a very interesting, captivating character. You know, he's mm-hmm. an adventurer, he's a physicist, he's, mm-hmm. he's been a part of a bunch of different groups. Right. You said big hands. I was laughing earlier. You said big hands because I was thinking about Lana from Archer. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't, my, you know, how my mind goes, whoosh. I was thinking about, he's a very talented physicist. And we're thinking about, if you were to just, I go from this background, there's this stereotype or whatever, you know, Beast actually, he's a great scientist, but he also was big hands, very, very strong. You think about, he's not the typical physicist. He was never was kind of thing. And so, you know, you don't think of a physicist as being in any way athletic or strong or, you know, mighty or quick or anything like that. The X-Men were revolutionary in many ways. They broke stereotypes so much, which was, I think, awesome, which is why I'm glad that that it's still running and why people respect it and love it so much. I honestly lost track of reading a lot of comic books. Just it feels like with comic books to me, there is so much to read, so little time, so much ground to cover, especially going into a lot of these Marvel movies. I have at least a little bit of a working background and some of the DC movies as well have a little bit of a working background, a working knowledge of a lot of these characters, because either on Wikipedia reading about these characters or Mm -hmm. in the library reading all these books about different characters. And Mm -hmm. now I have a good enough knowledge of some of these characters but some of these other yeah. ones there's you know. so many comic book characters you can't keep track of all of them to keep track of just one universe is a task marvel universe is massive yeah and that's again i think that's part of the reason why i didn't so much get into it you know because if i'm a fan it's unlike poor james bond fan there's the books there's the movies there's 20 some odd movies at this point they're going to be shooting the 25th one here very soon and it's like but that's a number i can digest it's like this is a concrete discrete number that's like okay but if somebody had never seen james bond in their life and it wants to get into it i'm sure they're thinking to themselves I have 25 movies and like a dozen books just by the original author and then another how many dozen books by like other authors. And I can't get into that. That's way too much to try to catch up with. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I guess believe like sports too. <laughs> is that counting the two unofficial ones? I uh, count Never Say Never Again. And that's the only one that counts. It doesn't count Steve's. <laughs> and it doesn't count the original Casino Royale? No. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because what actually happened, we like to talk about business acquisitions and entertainment and all that kind of thing. The company that produced Never Say Never Again, um, you know, it was it was released around the same time as in 1983 as Octopussy. And, you know, they, they called it the Battle of the Bonds. It was Connery versus Roger Moore. And basically what happened is that sometime later in the 90s, Eon, which is, I think, owned by Sony now, Eon produced all the Bond films, ended up getting the rights to that producer and whatever. So it entered canon of james bond so now that's why now it counts <laughs> but isn't never say never again basically thunderball it is yes they basically took thunderball made a couple of little changes and it's exactly the same otherwise bond's going to the bahamas looking for a nuclear warhead that his nemesis blofeld stole and is using as ransom to try to you know get power get money take over the world la 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 james bond <laughs> they're the same movie do you think that 
I guess in this climate now, a parody of James Bond that's not Get Smart would work? A humorous yes. take on James Bond? Absolutely, I think it would. And if you want proof of that, just look at Archer. Yeah. Going back to Archer. I mean, if you were to take Archer, and you know, to me, spoofs are a welcome sight these days. A good spoof. There are so many bad spoofs, you know. I have to, you know, clarify that. You know, a bad spoof isn't going to do anything for anybody. A good spoof of a film or a genre or something like that is always welcome, I think. A good spoof of James Bond, especially in today's political climate, I think would be great. Something between, you know, James Bond, Britain is sick of, you know, United States and Russia fighting with each other. So they send James Bond over to say, okay, figure out the election or something like that. And then James Bond has to go back and forth and he gets caught in this internal struggle and then has to figure out something. And then, you know, they can leave it open ended to be like, I guess I never did figure out the original mission. I guess I never did actually accomplish. So (laughs) I just thought about it. Two easy spoofs that come to mind. I haven't watched one of them, but of course, Austin Powers. I don't yeah. know if that's just mm-hmm. more of a parody or a satire. And Johnny mm-hmm. English with Rowan Atkinson. Mm-hmm. The one thing about Austin Powers, the first two movies, I would say, really got it right. Um, and I think they had a good balance. By the third movie, it was starting to get old. That's the thing about a spoof. You know, you're making fun of the same things over and over again. It's eventually going to get tired. It's going to get tired quicker than an actual just like core idea like film or a spy film or like a Mission Impossible film. So the spoof is going to get old. It had run its course by that point. So someone needs to do a new spoof a new idea, a new character, James Boog or something like that, you know, some new take on the same idea of a spoof of a spy film that I think would still be good, provided who is directing it. (laughs) Yeah, I am curious to see what the Johnny English movies are like. I know the next one is coming out. Of course, I haven't seen the first one. When I think of Rowan Atkinson, of course, I think of Mr. Bean. Yeah, I haven't seen the first Johnny English movie either. I I know very little about it, but I know it's supposed to be Bond-ish for lack of a better term. (laughs) Do you think Idris Elba would be a good fit as Bond? I do. And clarify something. I've read many of the James Bond books, and the basic concept of James Bond is this. He is a British Secret Service agent, and actually, for the movies, they made some adaptations from the books, because, of course, in the books, he was very, very chauvinist and violent and just in general a womanizer than he was in the films. And so they did tone it down a little bit. He had a massive scar across his face from a bad incident. So it doesn't actually in the books, as far as I've ever read, clarify that he is what we would call Caucasian. He's British. He's a Secret Service agent. His parents were killed. He lived in a certain spot. So in my mind, you have an actor who can play a spy. So a general actor who looks like a spy, who's tough, who can be quick and handle a gun, has a British accent pretty much. And whether it's, you know, Northern Ireland or whatever, who cares? And they don't look like a wimp. So someone that looks like they could be a spy, could be intimidating, that's James Bond. Details beyond that are what people are reading and are creating in their own mind. It's their imagination going to work, which is great. Every person should be able to have that. But there is no clarification in the books that I've ever seen that says that he is like one particular race or another. He could be played by an Indian man who is of British descent. Exactly. Every Indian person I've ever met in my life has black hair. And it does clarify he does have black hair because, you know, the girls like to put their hands through his, you know, wavy black hair, la 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 la. So, yeah, Idris Elba, I think, would be a fantastic bond. I think that's a better idea than some of the stuff they were tossing around a few years ago. Jamie Foxx, Will Smith, which is, I think, I that's just putting them in there for the sake of putting them in there. 
Right. I can't see Will Smith. Jamie Foxx would have to do a damn good British accent to do it. And he'd have to change his overall look. I don't want to say it like this, but there is a little bit like I can look at somebody, you know, and this is just me. I think there is a little bit of a difference in how the British conduct themselves, how they walk, facial expressions, all that kind of thing. Versus, And so I look at Jamie Foxx and it's like he's not British. He doesn't have those mannerisms. Idris has those mannerisms, you know, or at least he can, I think, realistically duplicate. I can't see Will Smith or Jamie Foxx being James Bond. If they want them to be a spy, they need to create a spy character for them that's different from James Bond. Same thing that they were going to do with Halle Berry. Do you remember that, Earl? You might have to refresh my memory on that with Halle Berry. Halle Berry was going to play a female spy in a series in the James Bond universe. She was Jinx in uh, Die Another Day. Halle Berry, they were talking to about playing in a Jinx movie, basically being a female James Bond. And I thought that idea was awesome because it was 2004 and there was a lot of controversy about whether James Bond was still relevant, you know, all that kind of thing, and that people were clamoring for a female James Bond. And I'm kind of like, just do a female spy akin to Bond. You know, there's no reason why we need to have a character as a character as a character. Instead of just duplicating a character, create a new character. Actually be original, folks. And they were going to make Jinx a female James Bond character, which I like because I like Jinx's character in that movie. And I thought that they could really do a lot of fun stuff with her. But it never got off the ground. And I think that was because of Halle Berry's schedule and, you know, the economy was doing some weird stuff. That was, I think, going through some strikes, too. So it never got off the ground, which I think is a shame. And once you win an Oscar, all of a sudden, your value goes up. You got it. You got it. And that happened as well. She did play Catwoman a few years later. I think that was... And that was the worst movie and mistake she could have made. But at least she was a good sport and went to the Razzies and accepted her Razzie mm-hmm. with a basically dead-on replaying of her Oscar speech. She looked good in white or whatever that stuff was, too. <laughs> you know, and- I think Halle Berry's attractive. So it's like, you know... And that's another example of how a movie company is not knowing how to do comic books right. And they basically get rid of the essence of what makes a character a character. And I was actually just sitting up recently watching a critique of Batman versus Superman. Mm -hmm. It's like a three-hour critique of the movie. There's probably the same length of the movie with the extra cut. And they just talked about how Mm -hmm. they took all the characters, all the things that made the characters these characters, and if you're trying to do a deconstruction of them, mm-hmm. they didn't do it well. Mm-hmm. What was the name of the director? I'm, I forget his name. He's done so many. Zack Snyder. He's done... Zack Snyder, that's Batman. it. He's done Sucker Punch. He's done 300. Has Zack Snyder done faithful comic book movie? Because the one that I know he's directed that I've seen, I've been like, this doesn't seem like what I've always thought of these characters it always seems like that he's like too edgy too gritty too like serious you know that kind of thing what do you think looking at it it seems like a lot of his comic books movies a lot of them are based off frank miller books graphic novels Mm. and things like that and again i didn't read 300 i never read a lot of the batman stuff the dark knight again a lot of my memories sort of blinking on this and i was sort of looking that up but I haven't read a lot of these stuff. I had a copy of Watchmen that a friend of mine gave me, and I haven't read it, but after seeing the movie, I mean, I don't know if trying to read a book after seeing the movie is a good thing, or reading the book and then seeing the movie. There's going to be so many things that are going to be changed from the uh, source content that it'll drive you nuts. That's why, for example, X-Men First Class. It was a really good movie, probably one of the better X-Men movies as of late. 
but I was sort of dead set against watching it because it didn't have the original five X-Men the way the story should have been told. Yeah, they made it better, but I don't know. Just sort of one of those old man yells at cloud type things, which again, that was an incident where I was what, not even and, in my and, 30s yet. And I was like, if it ain't Beast, Angel, Iceman, Cyclops, and Jean Grey, I'm not down for it. But I still watched it anyway. And you had, right, you had a nostalgic piece to that. And so you were a little more purist on that one than you might have been on some of the other things. And again, that just tunes into what your experiences are with it. It'd be like if somebody were to try to create a new Back to the Future movie and then Mark is like, uh, why isn't there like Doc? Or why is it some new scientist? You know, I, I, I'm not going to watch a Back to the Future doesn't have Doc and Marty, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I think the biggest thing is, I think Robert Zemeckis, for example, made it, I think him and Bob Gale, I think he made it known that it will not be able to be remade in their lifetime bequeathed in their mm-hmm. will it will not be remade at all i think and those are things yep. they are very protective of that right and of all the remakes that they made they made remakes of seeming almost everything at this point i thought that i tried it i mean they did try some facts of the future-esque type movies i think one was called time splitters or something like that or time jumpers or something like that about 10 years ago but yeah, Zemeckis and Gale both were like, you will not touch this movie. And then I heard that I was, you know, a part of me, I guess it was a part of my childhood that went like, oh, thank you, God. Because, I mean, to this day, I mean, actually, like you said, I work for the University of Maryland and I, you know, I programs for college students and kids as young as five sometimes. A lot of them have seen the movie series. A lot of them haven't. It's probably about 50-50. The ones that have seen it have said they liked it for the most part. The ones that haven't seen it, when they see it, they love it. And they think that, you know, and when I tell them, when we, and, you know, when their grandfather or their father or whoever, you know, is with me and talk to them about these things, um, tell them that it was made, you know, three years ago. They're like, what? You mean it's older than Mr. Mark? And they're like, yeah, it is. And then there runs the joke, oh, that's old then. Yeah, shut up, you little brat. <laughs> But in the same breath, I also have, you know, very special type of group kids in my program, very sciencey, techy, mathy type kids, too. So their interpretations of things are going to be very different. They're going to be ones that are going to be more prone to like the comic books as well. And, you know, back to the future and old stuff. And actually, that gets into another thing. You and I are both classic TV fans. A lot of the kids that I have in my programs now, um, they like watching things like me TV. Andy Griffith is apparently a particularly a favorite among them, of all things. And I'm like, seriously? I like Andy Griffith, but, you know, I like old stuff like that. So I thought that was very interesting. Have you seen anything like that in your experience? I think with the advent, of course, these channels like MeTV and Cozy TV and, of course, Hulu and uh-huh. Netflix holding on to these libraries and CBS All Access and a lot of these things holding on to these historical bits of TV shows, Bounce TV, things like that. I, it's interesting to see someone who's never seen a show before, what it's like, an older show, mm-hmm. especially from out of their age range. And looking at it, something that would have been like taboo at the time a show came out, is like basically old hat now. Yeah. Look at I Love so- Lucy was a great example of that. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Soap I, is a great example. Couple, living in New York City. Pregnant, had a baby, you know, on TV, basically. You know, they showed it at a point. I think for Lucy and Ricky, the first TV couple to actually sleep in the same bed. Yeah, They started separate. I remember that. I think they were the first couple. I mean, they broke ground so much. But as you said, nowadays, it's whatever. It's old hat. You know, who cares? 
And especially what made it interesting is that Lucy and Desi own their own production company. Yeah. And Desi Lou was a, a magnificently successful production company. They produced so many big hits through the 70s. I mean, they were massive. You know, Desi and Lucy, I, I don't have any worse swerve, you know, towards the end of their lives. But I, I can't imagine it wasn't anything less than hundreds of millions of dollars. Oh, yeah. Then them selling it to Paramount, too. Mm-hmm. And then they were the ones that put Star Trek on. Yes. I mean, can you imagine that Blue Steel Ball is responsible for Star Trek, which a lot of people say is what inspired Star Wars. So does that mean that without Lucille Ball, there'd be no Star Wars? I wouldn't say that because from what it was said, George Lucas wanted to do a Flash Gordon movie. They could not secure the rights. And mm-hmm. that's when he started with Star Wars. You haven't heard that, but like I've heard that Star Trek was one of the inspirations for Star Wars. Yeah, I think maybe when you look at the maybe episodes one, two, and three, a little more diplomatic and all that stuff. But even then, yeah, that was like really slow pacing. And I still have not seen a Phantom Menace in whole. I have not seen the whole movie. I haven't either. I've really only seen the fight with Obi-Wan, Qui-Gon, and Darth Maul. Other than that, I mm-hmm. can sort of do without it. I, uh, I've only seen the second and third ones in full. I mean, outside of the original series. Yeah, I've only seen bits and pieces of the first because it didn't have any sort of appeal to me. Despite, it, you know, again, one of the funny things about, you know, you said my degrees in physics. My specialty is in astronomy, astrophysics. Star Wars and Star Trek were not the movies I grew up with. They were there. I respected them. I know, but I was not a particular fan of them. I didn't hate them. I was just not a particular fan of them. You know, it was Back to the Future was my inspirational movie. And a lot of people are like shocked by that kind of thing. What was your inspiration movie, Earl? I know you're supposed to be asking me the questions, but I'm going to ask you some questions, Earl. (laughs) When it comes to inspirational movies, it is a very tough question to answer Mm -hmm. because... I have a lot of favorite movies, but none of them that really inspired mm. honest. You had inspirational TV shows. And that's a little tough, too. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like consuming years and years of consuming TV shows, there's nothing really that stood out to me. I have a bunch of favorites, but mm-hmm. nothing that's like, wow, this made me get into writing. This made me get into wanting to be sports. in sports. This got me into radio. None of those. You saw me the big green didn't just absolutely knock your socks off when it came off. Do you remember that movie? <laughs> uh, sports movies, that's down the hierarchy. As I've mentioned in the past, I have a lot of favorite sports movies. The Major Leagues, one and two are good. Number three I, is Dead to Me, and I don't care about it. I oh, like Rookie of the Year. Okay. Sandlot is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty much it when it comes to my hierarchy sure. of Sports movies, yeah, there's a bunch of cheesy ones like The Sixth Man, and yeah, that might be it. I mean, I've seen a lot of sports movies, but none of them that were like super inspirational. The Sixth Man? It is with Marlon Wayans and Kadeem Hardison, mm-hmm. and Kadeem Hardison is the star basketball player on the team, and Marlon Wayans is his younger brother. Mm-hmm. So, okay, during a game, Kadeem Hardison's character goes up for a slam dunk, and he has a heart attack. So he dies, and basically the team, through his ghost, having a successful run in the tournament. (laughs) Yeah. I am not kidding. (laughs) What year did this come out? Oh, man. The Sixth Man. Yes. I get the reference now. The the Sixth Man off the bench. Oh, Oh, okay. I never had, my mind never would have went there unless you explained that to me. Wow. 1997. Okay. For about 14, 
you were older than that. You were like 16 at that time, 16, 17, right? Uh, about 14. Yeah, about 14 there. What about 14? Okay, I had it right the first time. So that's interesting. That was early on, I guess, well, relatively early in the Wayans' careers at that point. Well, you have the second generation Before of the Wayans, I guess, in that case. True. Mm-hmm. That middle 90s period. Mm-hmm. But you didn't have any real like inspirational sports movies, I guess, then, did you? Nah, I can't say stuff like Rudy or anything like that were inspirational to me, but... I would have thought there was. That's why it's like I never asked you that question before. That's why I was like, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> Not a lot of fictional stuff drew me into pursuing a particular career in a particular avenue. Mm-hmm. Everyone has a different background, and everything that we get exposed to leads us towards something. I would say, you know, if you're, what's it called? You're into destiny, all that kind of thing. It leads us to our destiny. <laughs> Fate, destiny, however you want to kismet, whatever you want to call Fate. it. Mm, right. That's a term that doesn't get thrown out a lot anymore. Kismet. Kismet? Yeah. That term doesn't seem like it's thrown out anymore. I've heard the term. What does it exactly refer to, though? It is a synonym to fate and destiny. Okay. It's kismet. There we go. <laughs> yeah, it's a term I don't hear a lot anymore. It was sort of like swagger. You didn't really hear that anymore until it was brought back and beaten into the ground. Beating a dead swagger. Sometimes it's nice to use a word that hasn't been used in years as a way to sort of like enhance a sentence and sort of show off the quasi-intellectual side of some people with a term that hasn't been used. You got it. To a period where the term swagger became as annoying as on fleek. Oh, God. Fleek. Oh, I was so very early. <laughs> I heard that so much. But again, I was starting to work with college kids around that time, too. So, of course, you know, every time anything, something like that happens, the first ones that grab on it are kids. They'll grab on it and they'll just run into the ground. Minecraft was, you know, new. Everyone played Minecraft. Everyone cited Minecraft. Same thing with Fortnite now. I mean, kids are the first ones that if there's something you're remotely trending, they'll latch on to and then they'll, they'll go to the ones that beat it into the ground. If I hear some kid talking about how much they love Cardi B again, that's all I'm going to do. Not going to be like, Cardi B was as original as a punch in your face kind of thing. And that's nothing against Cardi B, but, you know, I'm just like, we've talked about our preferences in music, and you and I are on relatively the same page, Earl. There's no original music anymore either. Yeah, and I'm going to discuss this with as many people as I talk to when it comes to the subject of music. Now, I'll say maybe a range, maybe from the 50s, maybe to the early 2000s, Mm -hmm. particular bands and artists had a particular style that if you knew a song came on the radio, you knew this was Chicago. This mm-hmm. was the Ozzy Brothers. This was Phil Collins. This was Whitney Houston. This was Michael Jackson. This was some other band. Now right. everything sounds so homogeneous. When country songs right. are starting to sound like R&B songs. Mm-hmm. Or rock, whichever one, if it's even called rock. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. And I am not anti-pop music. None... whatsoever that'd be hypocritical liking michael jackson liking all these other things right you know pop's gonna happen but Mm -hmm. now rap it just they've experimented so much with so many different things it's just hard to even listen to or understand Mm -hmm. and i hate being that person especially at 35 to feel like oh rap is just garbage i'm not talking about the rappers yeah there may be some rappers out there who know their lyrics who are good but just Sometimes you just don't like wade through all the crap to find something, which is mm-hmm. a lazy way of saying so. Mm-hmm. Rapping is a talent, and it's a talent I think that very few people are actually good at. 
you know, again, how the brain is wired. You have to be able to come up with like jingly, catchy, rhyming words that, you know, themes are very, very quickly as you're improvising, going along. Rapping is a talent. And I think very, very few people in general are good at it. And these days, the ones that are actually good at it are ones that were not getting exposed because the people that have been around for a while or just look pretty and might be mildly just aren't bad at are the ones that are like getting record deals and that kind of thing. I don't know of any real people who are in the rap game that are like I think of are particularly good. I don't think 50 Cent's released anything in a while. I haven't really listened to a lot of Drake stuff. And Drake doesn't impress me, honestly, but that's just me. I'm sure people would disagree the heck out of me. <laughs> There was this stage when a lot of people, and I yield to call a lot of them maybe a tad bit hipsterish, but Lil Wayne, I was never a fan of his. There were probably plenty of other rappers that were better rappers than Lil Wayne. Just even some of his lyrical content was just awful. And I'm not going to say that I am a student of the game of rap. I'm not. But honestly, just listening to some of the lyrics, they're just so nonsensical and stupid. It's so much of it is nonsensical. That's the problem. I mean, it's like if you are a student of classic, you actually know that rap up until, like you said, like the early 2000s. Yeah, you might have lots of vulgar language, but there actually was something that was being discussed. There was something going on. There was some content or some story that was being explained there. You know, it wasn't just them throwing together random words and inserting a cuss word here and there or some euphemism for something. That's, yeah, now on the head there, in my opinion. Actually, and I think the euphemisms sometimes were better than just being out and out. And I don't want euphemisms to be compared to political correctness. That's a far different thing within uh, itself. Very far. But you think about also how much we use euphemisms and how much they have, you know, Match Game, for example, is a show that's pretty much built off the idea of a euphemism, at least the one that everybody remembers, you know, euphemisms yeah. and little slight winks and all that kind of thing, you know. Yeah, and I think at that time, the early 70s, and yeah, we were going to get on the game shows anyway, but we were just, I would just find a good hard segue into game shows. But yeah, yeah, look at Match Game. Again, the network's a little tighter on censorship, certain things you could and couldn't say. Mm-hmm. There was this explicit rule of Match Game that, I mean, it happened a couple of times, but you're not supposed to say any sort of word or synonym or euphemism for genitalia on there. By the way, sorry we're talking about this, but that was an explicit rule on there. And so they had to, celebrities had to find ways to dodge all that stuff. <laughs> and, and that's another thing. Now things seem a little looser, but I mean, there's still a fine line of what you can and can't say on TV. Mm -hmm. Do you like the current Match Game? I like it, but my only gripe is this. If there's mm -hmm. a word that is being censored or pixelated out on the card, you should at least be able to know what the word is. For example, they could do like a match game uncensored that you can do maybe on the internet. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. that. Way you let the words be known because some of the answers, you don't even know what they're saying because not only do they cover up the word and they pixelate the word out, they cover up the mouth of the person. So it's not even like they mute it. Mm -hmm. They just basically cover it up and you can't tell what they're going to say. I'm actually surprised because it's like what these days hasn't, I mean, I hate to say it like this, what these days has not been said on television that they're saying. I don't know what hasn't been said. So what, what are they trying to do? They're trying to promote a, you know, not to say a match game is a clean show, but they're, trying, it's like they're saying we're not quite that dirty. We're a certain level of clean or something like that. I, I it's, it's very strange to me, you know that they're actually really even censoring anything on there anymore. Because if you're really going to be writing an answer that could be censored, then it's like, okay, why are you writing the question at all then? You know, if you're not looking for that answer, then why are you writing that question? You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I think nowadays, going back to if you go with George Carlin's seven words, really, Mm -hmm. two of them are said more on TV, Mm -hmm. but the other five are still no-goes. And that's the thing. I I feel like that there's been some instance I've seen them on TV, but, you know, I could be wrong. It might have been a movie or something that I saw or whatever, but I just feel like, you know, that one of the things about modern television that there's, you know, there's, I don't want to say that there's no rules, but there's very, very little that's not allowed anymore. I mean, obviously, you know, nudity not allowed, but... And network TV, some is. And YPD Blue... Right. And shows like that sort of broke the mold, but it's nothing frontal. Right. And when you think about Game of Thrones, you know, it's like if you technically call that television on HBO or those premium channels, there almost is no lines anymore. I mean, I'm not criticizing it or saying good or bad or different. I'm just saying that it's interesting to me that some shows still choose to censor certain things and they do others. And then at the end of the day, because I don't envision, you know, Match Game is pretty popular now again. I don't envision, you know, kids watching Match Game. You know, if they're going to be watching any game show, they're going to be watching Family Feud and they're home from school and be watching Price is Right and Let's Make a Deal. We or unless they're very, very young and I don't watch them in you know, envision them watching Jeopardy unless they're in like high school or college. So outside of that, if they're watching any game show at all, it's going to be feud. It's not going to be matched game. And as we transition to one of the topics I wanted to talk about, game shows as well, mm-hmm. I feel like that is a form of competition. Yes. And competition, that's a good question. What type of competition can be considered a sport? Mm. There's a line between like what, what one might call a competition and what one might call an actual sport. You're right. Mm-hmm. ESPN, for example, had for years, and they still do maybe not as much prominence as it was a few years ago, a poker. Poker was definitely mm-hmm. on ESPN a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That 2004 late time period, my God. You can find poker on at least a few hours every single day. <laughs> and then, of course, every year they do the spelling bee. As someone who is not into spelling but more into trivia, mm-hmm. I don't see how you can't have a trivia competition on ESPN. Right. If you're going to have a spelling bee, if you're going to be saying that that's okay at the line, and I don't see how like quiz bowl, college bowl are in that same I agree with you there. Because mm-hmm. it's the same idea. You're testing the knowledge of somebody via some quiz or questionnaire in some form. Yeah. And at one point, ESPN, before they got all those big contracts to show all the major sports, they would have tractor pulls. They would air professional wrestling. They would air all different types of things. Do you and think a tractor pull is a sport? No, I don't think tractor pull is a sport. I don't. I don't think it is either. And I mean, I'm not knocking tractor pulling. It's just that, you know, I mean, that's actually what I think the basic question here. How does one define a sport? I define a sport as a competition in some form, which involves a degree of physical activity. How would you define a sport? The easiest way would be going by the textbook answer, athletic competition. But that Mm. case, if spelling is on there, why isn't chess? Correct. I agree. And none of those are easy for your average fan that watches ESPN. No. Spelling isn't any easier even if you put the word up there. Mm-hmm. I don't think we either consider ourselves big chess experts, but we know that chess is mentally taxing. Heck, depending on the game, a game of checkers or backgammon could be mentally taxing, depending on who you are. But I'm not going to consider them. I don't consider them a sport <laughs> so much, but maybe that's just me, you know. Yeah, I feel like sports, the athletic part, game shows are the mental part. Unless, for example, something like... Mm-hmm. 
double dare or something where you actually physically involved. And then there's reality shows, which if you take all the fabricated portions of it out, mm-hmm. there's a lot. There might be a portion that still maybe either could be part sport, part athletic competition, part game show. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, then you start to talk about the difference between like game shows and reality shows. Are we not necessarily a game show kind of thing? So in my mind, it was always like a Survivor is a reality show. Big Brother is a reality show. Wheel of Fortune's a game show. Am I always distinguishing factors that there's a game, but a reality show puts them into situations and it takes place over a season while a game show, in theory, is completed on one episode kind of thing? Yeah. And again, I haven't watched Big Brother or Survivor, so I really doubt that they have maybe like the intellectual type challenges that they used to have. I remember the first season of Big Brother, they had a competition where the teams had to pick out which celebrity is alive or dead. If they're asked for a particular celebrity, you have to say alive. Oh, yeah. Big Brother doesn't do that anymore. I stopped watching Big Brother years ago, started getting away from that. And that's when they started focusing solely on the drama between like the people and all that kind of thing. And there's always drama, but I always used to like the plotting, you know, when they would interview the players and they would talk about what they're plotting to do in order to basically upend the house or, you know, form an alliance, vote against this person. That's the strategy part. And that's the part of it I liked. And I think it was probably like 10 or 11 years ago, I stopped watching. They started getting away from that, just focusing on like them, you know, just fighting with each other all the time. And then, you know, all the rest, they don't do the actual game strategy part of it anymore. That I used to like Survivor and um, Amazing Race, you know, I think are the only ones I ever watch at all anymore. I never really watch Survivor much at all. Could we say, for example, Scrabble is a game, but Spelling Bee isn't a yes. game? Yes, as in like a Spelling Bee is not a game in general. Yeah, mm. the board game Scrabble, mm. which already has it in its name, board game is it's competition, <laughs> yes, but it is not a game. Yeah, mm. that's a good question. Because I'm thinking about spelling bee, and it's like, okay, then you have to define what a game is. And then it's like, okay, are you defining a game as in, like, what a lay person would define as a game, or what do you define a game mathematically? And I'm not even going to go into the mathematical side of it. <laughs> we'll be here all day. But that's interesting. Spelling bee, is a spelling bee a game? Ooh. I feel like spelling bee has a winner. You know, there's an objective. There isn't really actually a strategy to a spelling bee, you know? You know it or you don't. You know how to spell something or you don't. It's not like it's a word to spell. It's not like where, oh, I'll pass this word to someone else to see if they spell it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't have the advantage. You just have to get the luck of the draw. Mm Mm-hmm. Jeopardy actually has strategy, and that's why it's a game. But then that brings up a question. Is like a trivia contest, is that a game then? Yeah, that's a big question. I don't know. It's competition. I feel like when it comes to certain things, you have to put it in an example of category A, it's a sport. Category B, it's a game. Category C, it's a competition. Sometimes those things intersect with each other. Some will be a sport (laughs) and a competition. Other times it'll be a game and a sport. Other times it's a game and a competition. But rarely do you have one that's all three. Let's start at the very basic level. Arm wrestling. Arm wrestling, a sport, a game, or a competition. I think of arm wrestling as a sport because it is competitive with a physical element to it. Uh-huh. What do you think? A sport and a competition. Mm-hmm. It's a physical thing. Mm-hmm. Now then, if you take away, let's say, the money, and if you take away the television element out of it, what is deal or no deal? Is it a game? Is it a competition? It's a game because you're not playing let's say I just, anybody. Right. 
that's a game. I feel like mm-hmm. you can play games that see games can be competitive too. But if you're just playing yeah. against sheer luck, because mm-hmm. solitaire is a game, you yeah. play it with yourself. Yeah, it's not a sport. It's a game. Yeah. It's not a competition though. It's a game. And then if we were to say, okay, if I'm playing Hangman or somebody, you know, that game, it's not a sport, of course. But let's say then if you put the two of us on stage and in front of an audience, there weren't any prizes. But let's say they were asking us to play Hangman against each other. It would be a game. It'd be a competition, you know, and all that kind of thing. So where I'm going is when it comes to like spelling bees. I actually think it's a game because I could play a game with myself. You know, I have Siri, for example, or some method by which I get a word or somebody says a word and then I have to spell. You know, it's a game in that case against myself. A spelling bee then would be a competition with the spelling game in it so that's where i was going with all that is that i'm trying to piece together it's like we're considering that a game we're considering that a game or competition and by that i think that a spelling bee would have to actually be considered a game did that make any sense at all yeah the competition part of it yeah you're facing other people but there's no strategy to it it's being lucky if you get the word right or not Mm -hmm. and so that's the thing is i don't consider it to be any strategy to deal or no deal it's luck yeah right yeah, so certain, did you things consider- luck, certain things involve competition, knowledge, strategy. Now, the one thing is, were you a big solitaire player? Did you ever play a lot of solitaire? I played solitaire on the computer. I, I'm not a really big fan of it. You just mentioned poker earlier. I played a lot of cards in my time. Um, there are a few versions of solitaire that are pretty much solely luck-based. For example, pyramid solitaire is basically, you know, you form a pyramid of cards, and then you have your deck, and then you draw a card, have to basically match it up with the one which totals 13 points. You know, I don't see how that could be strategy, but it's considered solitaire and it's still a game. But at the end of the day, I can't control what card gets drawn because it's shuffled. So I still consider it a game, but uh, the strategy there is pretty much non-existent. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get you with that. And as a (laughs) poker player, well, what is your experience of playing poker? How did you get into playing poker, and what are some of the strategies aspects of the game, and what would you classify it as? Is it a combination of game and competition? Is it sport and competition, sport and game? Rarely is there something that's all three, and I can't even figure that out. Mm-hmm. Like, except maybe American Gladiators, maybe. Yeah. That might be that might be reaching. Yeah. yeah. So, you know me, Earl. I love games in general, whether it be card games, board games, game shows, you know, all that kind of thing. I've never been an athlete in any real form. I played soccer for a long time when I was in school, but I am not a natural-born athlete. My dad is. My dad, you know, is in his 60s and still referees soccer. So, But I grew up in a very game-oriented atmosphere. You know, we played a lot of games. My dad, a lot of cards, Monopoly. You know, we played a little bit of poker. Our favorite game to play together is actually backgammon. Um, we just haven't played it in a long time. So I always liked to play cards. I played poker played gin, all that kind of thing, which has very similar components to it, trying to make the best hand, here are your sets of different types of hands. Um, but I really didn't get involved in, I would say, the Texas Hold'em thing. I didn't even know that Texas Hold'em was a type of poker until it became popular. My dad was actually watching me. He's like, they're showing poker on ESPN. And I'm like, what? You know, I don't watch ESPN. He know, of course, he does quite a bit. But I, we started watching it. We just were looking and we were observing. And we're like, you know, this is interesting. There are these, you know, 
we know that there are expert poker players and you know that the ones that do really well are millionaires and make a lot of money every year, but those are few and far between. And we're watching and it's like, we're strangely intrigued. It's like, you know, what would you wager? And that's the whole idea. That's why it almost went into game show territory to me. Well, because I'm putting myself in the perspective of a, a contestant or a poker player. And it's like, hey, I wouldn't have done that. Why did you do that? Why did you have two aces, you know, and then fold? for example, you know. So that's what got me into it. It was right around 2004 or five. The thing that I also realized is that a lot of people there, they played their instincts instead of playing the odds. Now, at the end of the day, instinct in luck is such a huge part of that version of poker. There are some poker versions that are just Texas Hold'em is about 50% luck and 50% skill. You can be the most skilled poker, you know, Texas Hold'em player in the world. And still lose if you just don't get the cards. I mean, and some, I argue, oh, well, you don't need the cards. Well, guess what? If I'm getting seven deuce every single hand for the entire day, or if I'm not pairing up anything, I don't care how good I am. I'm not going to be able to get any money because somebody will eventually call me and I will lose my money. You can only do so much with so little. So Texas Hold'em is very, very luck intensive. It's one of the most luck dependent versions of poker but it was still fascinating playing it and um i've been in some competitions and um my general strategy is to follow the odds at least at first if i'm in a tournament and you know and that's the thing you play a texas hold of a tournament very differently if there's only like say nine or ten of you versus if there's a few hundred of you or god forbid a few thousand of you if you're trying to stay alive in a tournament that has lots of people, your strategy is to just basically wing it to try to stay stable with a certain number of chips. You know, figure out how many chips you're going to need to be able to move on and hopefully end in money. Because I don't want to say that almost anybody, or at least very, very few, that go into a tournament that has lots of people like that expects that they are going to win. They are going to be happy if they end in the money. You know, unless they're a pro. If they're a pro, then they might expect to win. When I was in a tournament, I was happy if I ended the money. Um, I had to buy, purchase my buy-in and then all that kind of thing. So if I ended up getting my money back and getting a little something more, I would be happy because it was worth my time and I had some fun in the process. But uh, my general strategy was at first to follow the odds and basically play the cards I get and not really take a lot of risks, which is dependent upon, of course, I get at least a card now and then. So if I had at least, for example, early on, I was, you know, I would be trying to if gave me anything. If it didn't, I'd probably be getting out of there as soon as possible. Um, if I did have something, I would try to milk it as much as it'd be worth. If I felt really strong, I'd hold back and see if anyone else felt strong. And if somebody did, I'd try to undercut them and be like, yeah, I just have a little something and hopefully turn over a full house and then be like, shit, I had no idea. That's the whole concept behind bluffing, you know. I'm not going to add anything until, you know, you give me reason to believe otherwise. <laughs> so my whole idea early on, I, I don't claim to be a good bluffer, you know. And actually, that's why poker exploded, because the people who weren't good bluffers never went into poker tournaments. Then they saw Chris Moneymaker and a whole bunch of other people starting to wear glasses and hats and all this kind of thing to cover their emotions. And they're like, oh, if I can do that, then I can play poker. And then they'd be bluffing all the time and all their tell, half their tells would be gone. I guess tell in poker. And so you cover your eyes. Suddenly, you know, if you're one of those people that like they have a tick or something like that when they're lying or they, you know, they get their eyes wince or whatever, or their pupils dilate or whatever, you know, you're not going to be able to see that if they're wearing sunglasses. And so Chris Moneymaker was one of the first ones I really, which I became popular. I mean, poker players have been doing it for years, but he was one of the first ones I really put it out there. And he was not a pro. 
He was brand new with 2004. He entered it and he won and it shocked, you know, the entire community. But that's my general concept is that I played pretty close to the best at first. And if I feel like if I sense weakness in somebody, you know, and you can't sense weakness. And that's the thing. Some players say they can sense weakness right as a person sits down and that kind of thing. I'm like, no, you're full of shit. You know, I have to observe somebody for a while. You can only sense patterns after a certain amount of time. You know, and this again goes back to physics. I can't establish a pattern if something happens only once. It has to happen multiple times for me to be like, yeah, that's a pattern. I can exploit that pattern, and that's how I'm going to get money off that person. The only problem is that you need enough time and enough information to know, unless you have spies watching every person in the recording. I have James Bond behind me. Yeah, you, that's right. You're exactly right. And that's movement, or like if you go by the show elementary where sherlock is just so good at noticing certain ticks and movements and actions where you'd be able to take advantage of them on just mm-hmm. meeting them at first sight there's no way you can tell right and that's exactly right you need a certain amount of time in order to establish these patterns and then figure out how to exploit them and that's always the one. if you're at if you had a table in which you're at with a bunch of pros guess what you're not going to get any information off them you're basically going to have to take risks hope you get the cards Hope somebody believes you, and that's how you move on. And that's why I say that poker is 50% luck. It's outside of the cards. It's so much luck that it's like no matter how good you are, if you just have an unlucky day, there's no way you're going to win. You need both the skill and the luck in like a Texas holding game. So you have to have enough time in order to establish a pattern, provided that there's any patterns to establish. If there's no patterns to establish, then it's just a random draw, and you might as well just be as random in your play. You know, that was always my thing. I don't claim to be an expert poker player. I won a couple of times, but I didn't win enough that I don't that I think I'd be myself playing poker. And I had some times which it was absolutely terrible luck. You know, when poker was really big online and um, there was all sorts of websites where you could play and, you know, you'd go on and you'd have like a custom character and then you'd be dealt a card. You can enter tournaments or free play. This was probably like, again, like five, six years ago. This point, Poker Stars is the first one that comes to mind. They were advertising them all the time on ESPN. Did you ever play poker much? Like? Never a lot in Texas Hold'em. I mean, I played like the generic five or seven card draw. So I went about five, six years ago. Now it was longer than that. Probably closer to 10 years ago too now. I used to be on a couple of those sites and I would play quite a bit. And um, I just always remember I could get great cards. Obviously I try to, you know, I have to measure the table. Sometimes I play it slow. Sometimes I play it hard depending upon how gullible or how not. There are some people on those websites, no matter what they'd had, they'd be going all the way each time. And then, you know, they go in with like, a two and a three and they'd end up winning because of luck of the draw and then they keep doing that and then they'd somehow keep winning and then there'd be accusations of cheating and all that kind of someone winning the program all that kind of thing and then there would be time same person you know oh i had double aces i remember one time i think on the flop i had what they call quad aces which is four of a kind aces it's one of those dream hands that there's basically only two things that'll beat you if you had four aces you could get a straight flush or you can get the primo version of a straight flush, the royal flush. Mm-hmm. Those are the only things that beat you if you have four aces. I had four aces. The guy that I've been all this time, he played a three, five, I, I want to say spades. I remember being spades because I remember it was very appropriate. He rivered a straight flush and knocked me out. 
Mm. What am I going to do with quad aces? What am I, what am I not going to go all in? Especially when this guy across the table has been, you know, going all in every hand and somehow winning, you know, with terrible hands. Like I have quad aces. There's no way that you beat me with this. Holy shit. You beat me. What else am I going to do with quad aces? You know, that's always the thing about poker. It's like, I played that hand as by the book, by anybody's book that's ever been written, should have been played, and I still lost. And that's how poker works. You just got to accept you, you will lose, you know, and you got to hope that the times that you win are big enough that counter the times that you lose. And I want to say the odds for having quad aces is something like one in half a million, if not more. Mm. So he pulled that one in 500,000 odd to beat me on that. And I got knocked out of that tournament after I, and that was one of those big ones. It was like, it was a 4,000 person online tournament and we were at the final two tables and guess what? Yeah. He pulls that on me and I didn't play poker for at least a couple of weeks because I was so ticked off. It's like, you don't deserve this. It's <laughs> like, I played the correctly arms. You didn't, you didn't deserve that. Oh, I was sick. I had a bad beat. And um, I was fuming pretty badly from it. That's how poker works. And that's how most card games work in general. So, yeah, you just got to kind of hope that as you, if you decide to go into card games, and I don't encourage going to gambling as a full-time thing. Number one, you got to know the odds. you got to know the map behind it. Because I make the analogy to blackjack, too. I think I've told you I play blackjack quite a bit now. And that, you know, if we go to a casino, Mark stays away from poker. Mark plays blackjack. And do you remember why Mark plays blackjack, girl? Because <laughs> of your math skills, probably. If you know the math, Jack, it is the only game in the casino which you can have the advantage over the dealer. Which the percentile, if you play it by the odds, would be in your favor slightly over the dealer. Instead of being like 40% to 60%, if you know the odds and you know the math behind blackjack and you're paying attention to cards, you can have a 51, 52 percentile. It is the only game you can do that. And it's why it's the only game I play in a casino. It's also why it's the only game in a casino I've ever won. <laughs> I've ever won money at, really, over time. You have to know the math. You have to know the theory behind it. You have to know the odds if you're going to go into it. There's no other way around it. You can't just rely and say, I'm a lucky person. I'm going to do it. It's not going to happen. You have to know the math. And that's probability and statistics and all that kind of thing. Speaking of probability, statistics, luck, and other things, you know I'm a big fan of baseball. And mm -hmm. baseball is a sport basically of failure. You can fail yes. 70% of the time and still be the greatest in your sport. Mm-hmm. How few people have, you know, batting averages over 300, right? Yeah, and that seems like that has gone down in years as well. Oh, yeah. And one of the things, of course, I want to talk to you about because numbers and math and statistics would be a little more your forte is, mm -hmm. and we've had this discussion before, sabermetrics, advanced statistics, things like that. While they seem like they're a lot of the same, they are not the exact same thing. They're they are very different just by going by some of the different textbook definitions of advanced statistics and sabermetrics. Mm -hmm. And to me, I know there's been more of a focus in the sport. I feel that statistics are starting to go a little more hand-in-hand -hand with the scouting aspect of baseball. Not only can you see, do they have the ability to do particular things, it's what particular statistic shows what they're strong at. Like some guys mm -hmm. walk more, some guys mm -hmm. hit the ball harder, some guys are faster, yeah. and especially the way they scout guys, they have their scales. The lowest you can have, it's on a 20 to 80 scale. 80 is at the utmost, and 20 is as low as you can get. Guys try to project 
what a guy could be in the future. And some of those things you can't really project because you don't know what's going on in their personal life. Exactly. Injury can throw everything off. And performance, too. Performance can overrule anything. Some guys that you wouldn't even give them a chance can end up performing at an optimal level to the point where any projection that you have for them or any eye test that you have for them is really negated. Right, and that's actually one of the key differences between doing statistics for something like what we were talking about earlier, like a poker game or like a um, game show where the rules are very rigid and there's basically win, loss, and there's very few elements. In a sport, in at least, for example, baseball, it's an athletic sport. There are so many factors that can go into how an athlete performs that day. And at least right now, and I don't think ever in our lifetime, there's no way to quantify every single element of an athlete's performance in a particular game. It's trying to quantify every possible motion and movement and ability of the body on that particular day. And of course, some people just sleep wrong, and the next day, their entire body mechanism is different. They kink something, or their back hurts a little bit or something, and that's going to affect how they play. It's very difficult to do statistics for baseball and be able to, I think, forecast future performance, you know, which is why sabermetrics was brought up in the first place, provide more accurate means with which to judge how athletes perform and predict which ones are going to have the most success going forward. Isn't that correct? Yeah. And the thing is that no one can predict an early decline. Yes. And the biggest thing is when it comes to baseball players, their peak is about ages 26 to 30. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why you see a lot of guys, for example, Manny Machado, he's, he just turned 26. Mm-hmm. He's put up a lot of numbers from age 20 to 26. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these guys will get paid for past performance, not exactly what they're going to do. Right. And some people peak before they're 26 because of medical things that might happen or because, you know, something that happens in their own personal life. Like, for example, I think there is a, probably some tendency for like, you know, we're talking about genetics, for example, just for a second, you know. Chronic illness, there's a huge increase in the amount of chronic illness in people these days, you know, and we've talked about that before with people we know, families and ourselves and everything. If a person, you know, while they're in their 20s, they're supposed to be your most virile and powerful and all that kind of thing. But if that's also when, for example, you develop a chronic illness, like you end up having early stage arthritis or disease or name a chronic illness, and that ends up developing early on because it developed early on in your father, guess what? If I was an athlete, first of all, I would not be putting that out there that my family has a history of chronic illness because guess what? I know I'm not going to be offered my contract, right? If there's some tendency that Mark's probably going to get sick, you know, in five or six years, no, I'm not going to tell my coach that because guess what? It means I'm probably going to be less sane because Mark's health's going to fail and then he's suddenly not going to be able to play. But then, you know, it hits. And so they have their peak in their early 20s and then they get signed until something, like you said, for five, six years. But then bam, they get nailed with some ailment or God forbid, they might break something or tear something that ends up affecting their ability just, you know, in its recovery about them, just the body to heal fully. And then guess what? Their entire career might be in jeopardy or at least their form at the level that was expected of them. That's why it's like there's so many factors and so many things that go into that. Doing statistical analysis for baseball or any sport is always, I think, going to be a massive challenge. And another thing with baseball is there's a lot of statistical analysis used to determine a player's value as well. Like, for example, wins above replacement. We've had that discussion before where I'm far from a math person and I know 
that while war can be uh, valuable in certain aspects, it's not the end all be all, especially seeing right. that there's different there are different ways to get that rating because there's three or four different websites that have different ways to determine what wins above replacement equals. And right. That's tough for me as math is already hard enough and other than like quick addition, quick multiplication, or as Jethro Bodine on the Beverly Hillbilly would say, Gazintas. Other than that, it's very difficult to even try to fathom a lot of this stuff. There are particular statistics when I look at baseball players. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's the traditional ones, batting average, again, which doesn't tell the whole story. RBIs, which to me has always been an example of luck and fortune. Yes. Walks, that's a, maybe a sign of a good eye, but then again, it's also about what's around you. If you're no, vision, you, you have a better vision, you know what pitch is in the strike zone or not. And then that can also be altered by some umpires as well because they could see something they have a different strike zone. There are a few advanced statistics that I, I'm a fan of. There's on-base percentage. How many uh-huh. times you get on base regardless of a walk or a sacrifice. And, you know, sacrifice flies don't hurt your batting average. It doesn't hurt your on-base percentage. Errors, mm-hmm. one of those things that if you get on base by an error that hurts your batting average, it doesn't really help your on-base percentage either. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's isolated power, which tells how much raw power a guy has, which is batting average subtracted from sucking percentage. And it's not really huge in the grand scheme of things, but it's something I like. I'm a big home run guy. And actually, isolated power, or you said minus batting average, right? Yeah, slugging minus batting. So, and there's another way that I've seen it calculated when I've been looking around, you know, just brushing up on a few things, and it's extra bases divided by at-bats. And see, that gets involved into the whole, what you were saying before, there's, you know, war was a great example. There's different methods of calculating some of those things. Are those rooted in mathematical, you know, you have an equation, you have a variable that you define to this thing, and another way to calculate if you rearrange the variables, or is it just some other way that, in theory, is a way to measure this, but it's a completely different number. It's not the same number. It's just how they would prefer to calculate. It's a measure of trying to figure out that raw power. Is it a mathematical equivalence or is it basically what I would call a value equivalence, the value in terms of what it tells you? Because if it's a value equivalence, I would say then it's objective calculation and it shouldn't be used. If they're mathematically, if the equations are the same, then I would say, okay, fine. And that's the one thing, you know, because, and again, you know, while I might be a mathematician statistics type guy, I don't claim to be an expert on sabermetrics. But one of the things that I've always seen going through, you know, all these calculations, first of all, there's a ton of different measurements that are using sabermetrics. It's unbelievable actually how many different versions of different things there are and i can understand why if somebody who may not be math inclined would look through this and you know their eyes would glaze over it's a lot to go through and then you have certain statistics like you said like war that you see three or four different ways to calculate it and coming from a person who is math inclined that concerns me basically what i would call the legitimacy of the calculation is there some real physical manifestation of what that number you get out of there means. I could choose any two variables that a pitcher or whoever on a baseball team might be, you know, encountering during a game or during a season. And I could say, I'm going to divide this thing by that thing and get a number. And I'm going to say that it's a measure of their ability to hit the ball. I don't know. But again, each of these statistics, there's an origin, as I understand it, reading through here, somebody started calculating it and started evaluating and saying, this is a good measure of how to do this. And my whole thing is when it comes to 
lightsaber metrics. You know, I think some of the numbers, some of the calculations are, I think, possibly useful. I think other ones are just ones that somebody kind of looked at, came up with, almost like their own personal like measurements. You know how people have their own personal instincts or their own views on something. Someone's like, okay, I'm going to look at this and look at this. And it's like, I look at this number. It's like, yeah, that gives me an idea about this thing. As opposed to being like a real, honest, mathematically, statistically valid number that could be used for forecasting. Because like in business, you're not going to just use somebody's gut to forecast what you need to purchase or what your next product is going to be in business. Why should you be doing the same in baseball or any sport? Yeah, I don't know. And there's so many other things that you can't determine. A guy might get slower as you get older. Someone's speed might decrease. As for a pitcher, their velocity might go down. Let me use like more of a fastball for an example. Everybody has a fastball. Maybe the velocity is not the same. Some people can throw 100. Some people can throw maybe 88. You knew where I was going. That's exactly right. Every person's measure of success what that person can get done is different depending upon their body structure, their strength, the size of the hand, the size of the fingers, you know, all that, all those little elements that play into that final speed when they threw at that time. It goes back to there are so many little things to measure when it comes to athletics, you know, and how a body performs during, you know, while playing a sport that it's almost, you know, too much to even try to consider every little thing in order to figure out how the body's going to perform going forward. Just from one day to the next, so probably a fastball, like you said, is a good, is really a great example. One person's fastball is very different than another's. The speeds will be different. Even the angles will probably be a bit different, you know, geometrically. So it's a lot to consider. And one thing I'm looking at a lot of baseball players are starting to use more is the thing called launch angle. So they have been tailoring their swings to get a better angle to get more lift on a ball to mm-hmm. power. So as opposed to somebody who has pure yeah. power who doesn't have to use a particular angle, who can just hit the ball to the point where the ball just flies off their bat without changing the way they swing. That's played more of a difference. Mm-hmm. There's so many yeah, that's that going into the business There's a thing it. called spin rate that they use for curveballs and mm-hmm. pitches and things like that. Yep. And I haven't been really looking up a lot on spin rate, but you hear it all the time. Spin rate, spin rate, how much the ball rotates as well. And I don't want to just say it's towards curveballs. It might be all different types of pitches, breaking balls, all-speed pitches. Every ball spins a little bit as it's heading towards the batter. It's just a matter of, you know, again, how much spin that affects how the ball basically performs, how it behaves as it's heading towards there. But yeah, spin ball is actually probably a good example. That rotational velocity from one player to the next can be significantly different. And it's going to affect how that ball moves. And when you're talking about the lift behind that, again, going that's again, we're going back into physics here. They're trying to change the angle of attack, which using gravity provide more acceleration, which will increase force, the power behind what that ball is doing. And then, you know, and hopefully it gets past the batter or if the batter does hit it, then perhaps it will not go where they want it to. They'll hit it in the wrong portion of the bat and it'll go towards left field or it'll be a foul. That's one of those other things about baseball. It's like there's actually comparatively a very narrow channel which a legal ball goes. How wide is your foul range kind of thing, you know? It's so it's like there's a lot of different ways that ball can go and only a select few whenever a ball is coming towards you that will actually count for something, be in play, as we say. Speaking of in play, with the variety of stadiums and different dimensions, a home run in Baltimore might not be the same as a home run in San Diego or a home run in yeah. Los Angeles or a home run in Yankee Stadium or a home run in Fenway. And I like the quirkiness of different stadiums and everything has a different look. There's sure. a set field of play. 
Mm-hmm. The Polo Grounds, where the New York Giants played and the Mets played, where they would have the walls, I believe, were about 300. Mm-hmm. Well, left and right field, and then they'd have like this huge, huge center field, and that could range from somewhere to 470 to 483, and then it would be mm-hmm. a little slope. So if the ball went overhead, you'd have to run downhill to catch the ball. Yeah. And they'd have overhanging rafters. So if you hit it a good 250 to 275 feet up into the upper level, it's going to be a home run where it wouldn't have been a home run if you hit it down the line, just, I'd say, below those seats. If you take a look at the polo grounds, there are probably photos on the Internet of those overhanging walls. And Mm -hmm. you could just see how they're sloped and how there'd be much more of an advantage. If you lost it up high enough, it would clear and would be a home run. Yeah, and that's one of those things that, you know, like you said, that's one of those quirks of baseball, but that's one of those quirks that I think most people, myself included, kind of like. Each stadium is unique, and each stadium has its own quirks with what's foul, what's fair, what's a home run, you know, basically everything from how the wind can come in and then channel or direct the ball as it's in the air. I mean, there's all sorts of factors, and that's one of those things that goes back to what we were saying earlier, trying to do statistical analysis. When you're in a baseball field, and you're trying to basically do some statistics on how that person is performing, you're assuming a number of constants. For good statistical analysis, you need there to be a number of constants in place that don't change no matter what the situation is in order for that to be at any point valid. For example, a home run percentage. Or think of any sort of measurement that may involve home runs that are hit by a player. If they're always in Camden Yards, that number is going to be one thing. Let's say we're just going to make something up. Let's say it's 10%. You know, that's very generous, but the 10%. So let's say that that average person's, and how, how many yards, Earl, does it take for a person to get a home run in Camden Yards? Not that I expect you know off the top of your head, but what would you estimate? Yards-wise, left field 110 yards, about right field about 100, and center, yeah. dead center is about... Divided by three, I'm trying to pull the math off myself. Uh, 100, 110 yards, approximately. Yeah, worst case, it's 410 in center. And there are some places that you said in which you can get a home run by going only as far as like 250 feet. Is that correct? That was, that was the old one in the polo grounds back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, mm-hmm. early 60s. But now I think the smallest mm-hmm. dimensions, I think Fenway's wall might be short. Even when I was there last year with my dad and i did notice that's like this seems see it which i could tell it was significantly small just like in variation from that alone you're, you're talking about from 300 feet to 330 feet that's a 10 percent difference and so you think about it if somebody is trying to you know get their statistics in fenway and you know they're hitting them and all that kind of thing and then they go to say camden yards or you know yankee stadium or namely stadium, which it's slightly different. It sounds like that, you know, the variation can be as much as 10 or 20 percent, which means depending on which stadiums you're in, when you are striking the ball or when you're just, again, how the wind wind channels itself, weather can have a significant impact on performance that night. And it's something, again, we can't control. The field, if it's a little bit slick still after it rains, that can affect everything from catching to, you know, if the ball might be a little bit wet because the air is moist, very humid outside, and then the composition of the ball changes. There's all these elements that, depending on where you are, what stadium you're at, can change what your statistics are that night. And then you act over the season. Somebody's going to say that it's negligible, but I 
don't agree with that because you're talking about variations that could be like 10, 20 percent. And not only is that statistically significant, that's enough so that if there was variation that much in like an actual scientific study, the results would be thrown out. There's too much variation there. That's just like it's basically like a roll of the dice. So if you happen to be playing more in Fenway that season or getting the majority of your home runs in Fenway that season or most of your hits in that season, you're going to have a better chance of getting that home run possibly than you would in another stadium. So there's so much variance that it calls into question the ability to really accurately statistically measure a lot of these elements of a baseball player's performance at all. Yeah, and we were talking about home run rates, so I just found this info. MLB Park Factors, home runs a game. Great American Park in Cincinnati, Ohio, 1.395 per game mm-hmm. over this last season. Number two, Coors Field in Denver, 1.28. Mm-hmm. So elevation, that's one issue. Globe Life Park in Arlington, Texas, very hot weather, 1.273. And around out number four through ten, four, Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia, 1.19. Nationals Park, 1.173. Yankee Stadium, 1.16. Ah, Angel Stadium of Anaheim, 1.138. Now, what they say about Angel Stadium, daytime, it's easier to hit home runs. At night, it is very hard for the ball to travel. And you know why that is. And then Rogers Center in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, 1.125. Also retractable roof dome, so that could also be a difference. Oriole Park at Camden Yard, number nine, 1.12. And the next one, Miller Park, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 1.116. Retractable Root Dome, Midwest, Northern Midwest, but some of the top stadiums for home runs per game are basically in the Mid-Atlantic or the American League East. Mid-Atlantic, Citizens Bank, Nationals Park. If you count New York State as Mid-Atlantic, it's always sort of weird how they do that. That's there. Oriole Park at Camden Yards, Mid-Atlantic. Rogers Center in Toronto, American League East. What you were saying about Anaheim is really a great example of the statistical variance that can just occur a game, let alone an entire season. You know, just from one hour to the next, what happens in the performance can change during the day versus during the night. A home run that otherwise would have been possibly would not have been at night. And at the end of the day, that's going to affect that player's statistics, which therefore, you know, if they're playing in Anaheim for whatever reason a lot that season, whether they play for Anaheim or their team is going against Anaheim, you know, a lot and they're, you know, those days in which they're in Anaheim a lot, that's going to affect their statistics significantly. And so you got to consider some of these things. And I don't have an answer for this, but you've got to consider there almost has to be some sort of factor almost that would have to be brought in in order to try to help even this out. Like, for example, if you're trying to measure on base percentage is the on base for the you know if you're in anaheim stadium versus yankee stadium if you need to multiply each by some number so that it evens out and they account for each other's stadiums and they're just weather differences oh yeah and i understand and i think slugging would be more an example where you'd have to worry about that on base i think it's all about hits it doesn't matter if it's like a ball that barely gets out of the infield or if it's a line drive getting on base there but you're going to benefit from a walk on your on base percentage so it gets more of a physical skill patience and discipline you knowing when not to swing and also an example of an umpire whether they see a particular pitch because the difference between a ball and a strike could be just a position of where an umpire is and and i feel like focusing those type of things it can be a very 
It feels like there's a lot of minutia when it comes to baseball. There really is. And things can change. And I don't want to say like a butterfly effect, but little things can change everything. A ball could slip out of your hand. A pitch could, you know, a lot of pitches have movement when it comes to their velocity. A ball can move everywhere. You, you might try to aim for one spot and it just goes another direction and it can change a lot. Butterfly effect is a real thing. There's a mathematics called chaos theory, and that is where the butterfly effect is often talked about. And it explains how things such as clouds are formed. I mean, if you think about that, all the variation there is in a cloud, Earl, what does that mean there could be in variation in terms of how a ball travels or how a bat may, you know, when it hits the ball, where, where basically how fast it goes, something like that. The butterfly effect is very real. And you brought up the umpire, too. There's another piece that can be subjective if it's a strike or if it's a ball. As you said, there's a lot of minutia. There really is to baseball. And that makes statistical analysis of it in general very, very hard. I would almost go so far as to say that it might be very close to impossible, you know, there are some statistics, I think, that provide value that can be measured with some relative accuracy in which the effects of weather, Mother Nature, subjectiveness of human decisions like an umpire, you know, are minimized. So there are statistical value to it. But beyond that, I question how much of it is just a crapshoot or is just so subjective that it's not statistically relevant. Yeah, I think trying to, like you said before, projecting stuff, that's going to be very hard to do because there's too many things that could occur and too many factors. For example, there's a lot of stadiums. There's a few retractable roof domes. That could change everything. Uh, big stadiums. Like, for example, you were talking about someone, if they play in Anaheim, they also have to play in Oakland, a big stadium that has huge foul ground and a stadium whose wind pattern was changed because they had to renovate their stadium to make it football accessible. Then you have Seattle, a retractable roof mm-hmm. dome with a huge, huge outfield. But then you also play in Texas where it's very hot and the ball travels. And you also play in Houston where there's a retractable roof dome, a very hot place. Yes. And again, way the dimensions are, and that can change it. Just like if you say someone playing in Boston, they're going to play half their games in Boston. And then they play games in either Baltimore, New York, Toronto, Tampa Bay. Mm Mm-hmm. Those are examples where it also, not even just where you play, it's, you know, among the teams that you're going to be playing. And then I feel like it just keeps getting bigger because then different teams have different philosophies and that can change and they can play roles in how you perform. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's just think about temperature just very quickly because temperature, you know, most people aren't very well, a change in temperature, hot, cold, all that kind of thing. Let's say it's a very hot day in Anaheim. Okay. So somebody is prepping a ball for a pitch. Well, the temperature has changed. And let's say one day in Anaheim, it's in the 80s. And the day before when they were playing, it was in the 70s. You're talking about a 10-degree temperature difference. So that increase in temperature to the next day, when the pitcher is getting ready, his hands are probably, for example, sweaty. Okay? That means the ball on the outside is moister. Well, going a step further, so obviously that's going to affect how he releases the ball because it's going to have a little less friction if his hands are moister, right? Even though, you know, of course, they try to reduce that, sand it up, all that kind of thing. Guess what? Your body doesn't stop sweating, you know, and it can only reduce it so much. So, but not only have the expansion and contraction of the materials involved. So the baseball is going to expand a little bit from that 10 degree temperature change. The bat is going to expand a little bit. And so not only do you have a ball whose basic structure, physical properties change, the thing you're hitting with, with the bat, its properties are changing. And again, is it something where given time weeks for that day, what those changes are? Yes, but it's highly time intensive. 
it's not something that gets turned around in a day or two that we can analyze those changes and analyze how it can affect performance. It's something that takes years to do. And it's something, again, it's like, how much detail do you want to get? Do you want to get down to the molecular level and show how this propagates itself? Or do you just want like a general idea? It's going to change all will travel by about 5%. Or do you want that exact number? You know, these temperature changes will cause a 4.678% difference in how far the ball travels. And again, but those differences are statistically significant. So something as simple as a temperature change can change how a player performs what their numbers are like that day. And that's why I look at some of these sabermetric statistics and I'm like, is this actually useful or is this someone's own personal number that others started using that they just kind of came up with and just kind of decided that it, it was good for their players, you know? So there's a lot of variation. It's overwhelming to think about really to an extent. <laughs> yeah, and I think just sort of summing things up for me, it's hard to really project what someone will do in the future. You can go yes. by past experience to see what they might do. Like, for example, certain guy hits better against lefties and righties. You'd use that as an yeah. advantage. Game five of the National League Championship Series, what happened was the Dodgers had a lineup prepared to hit against a left-handed pitcher. The left-handed mm. pitcher started the game. After facing the first batter, the manager pulled him and brought in a right-handed pitcher for the rest of the game. Oh, boy. So that's just play against those odds. And they've been using different things, like, for example, now some teams will have a relief pitcher start the game and maybe mm -hmm. have him go an inning or two and then bring a, a long relief guy who will eat up the innings. And then yeah. sometimes they'll use that reliever the next day, too, that whole, as they call it now, the opener. If you look that up, Tampa Bay uses it a lot, uses it a lot. On certain days when they don't have a really good starter who will pitch the traditional way, they'll have a reliever, mm -hmm. maybe go back to back, maybe two days in a row, start a game maybe go an inning a third, maybe two innings, depending on pitch efficiency as well. And then they do that. Mm -hmm. But it seems like that's a trend that's going. And I like that. That's something different. And there's been a theory that, especially when it comes to the playoffs, you have to pitch it like you're playing in a tournament. You want to use your best guys at a particular time and not have them in a particular role. Right. I'm just looking through here on this website about some of the other sabermetric numbers. And one of the ones I think you mentioned it earlier, win expectancy, otherwise known as win probability. It's basically evaluating the current game situation, such as the score, the number of outs, men on base, run environment, to historical situations, and deriving a percentage that is quantifies basically the team's chance of winning, you know, from one event in the game to the next. And I'm just looking at that, considering what we talked about, and it's like, that's, I think, you know, it says here an example, if a team's win expectancy jumps from 30% before a home run to 70% after, the player who hit the homer would have a WPA or a win probability added of 0.4 for increases in his team's chances of winning by 40%. Basically what it boils down to is that this one event in a baseball game can switch, you know, probabilities so much to switch those statistics up and changes to, you know, the proposal of players so much that forecasting, yeah, becomes so difficult because you can never anticipate what's going to happen from one game to the next. That's one of those actually really cool things about baseball, why I think baseball is such a great sport to watch in person, because every game is different. Every game is unique and has its own unique quirks to it. No one game is like another. And that's, you know, part of the beauty of the game, that randomness. Yeah, and for example, there was a game a couple of years ago, 2016. The Orioles, I think, hit back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back homers in a game off the Astros and lost the game. So their win probability went all the way up, and they still lost. Mm-hmm. 
And that happens a lot sometimes in different sports. I mean, it's really hard to put that on something like maybe basketball because sometimes there are plays where it comes down to the last possession. And it's really hard to project a lot of stuff. Like, for example, fantasy football uses a lot of win probabilities. There's projections, but then again, what happens if your players are under that? Mm-hmm. And they use sabermetrics across a number of sports now, don't they? One that yeah. comes to mind. I don't think they're calling them sabermetrics. They're more advanced statistics. I know basketball mm-hmm. is using advanced statistics. Hockey is definitely using it. NFL seems like they're avoiding it and not using it as much. Quarterback rating was also a tough thing for me to try to understand. There's just so much into that. And yeah, and, there's no math in football. What are you talking about? Yeah, only when it counts to the scores. Right. I feel like keeping statistics is good just to measure numbers. Mm-hmm. I feel like trying to go ahead and project them and look forward and predict stuff is hard. People can't even predict the weather accurately. How can you predict mm-hmm. what someone will do down the road? You can only analyze it so much before it's overkill and it doesn't mean anything anymore. It, there's so much of that. Weather is really a, such a great example to compare it with baseball because you think about the you know, think about how accurate the weather is. And again, weather is all about analyzing historical trends and making determinations about seemingly small calculations that could have butterfly effects and, you know, cause something like a tornado and trying to forecast when those will happen in the future. And that's very, very difficult. One thing that Back to the Future 2 got wrong, they were hoping in 2015 we did have the accuracy of, you know, like knowing what the weather's going to be like from one minute to the next. Not even close. We still can't get the weather right sometimes a day or two in advance. Hurricanes this past season have been a great example of where they're going to hit, what the impacts are going to be. And we're talking about a massive weather system here. You know, you would think, okay, this thing is going to go in that direction. But no, those things can take mass because of small things such as like where another storm is located or the temperature of the ocean. If those little changes can have such a big effect on something like a hurricane, can you imagine what it could do to something like a baseball pitch? Yeah, I couldn't think of the impact that could have on it. And I guess in this situation, as we're drawing this to a little bit of close, and definitely we're going to come back and talk a little more pop culture and less about mathematics, which sometimes can make anybody's head hurt, even the people who talk about mathematics. But yeah, I think that statistics are good, but Mm -hmm. sometimes it's hard to use them as a determinant for future production and future act and, and for it to be accurate at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you I mean, you're absolutely right. Some statistics are more valuable than others. And you find that out over time analysis and all that kind of thing. And you find it out over just, you know, in general accuracy. And again, is there some, what I call physical manifestation of it? Is it just some number or does it actually have this means that this person is, say, getting on her face more? Does it mean that they're getting more runs? Does it mean that their pitching speed is higher? You know, what is the physical form of that number? You know, if you ever decide to get into advanced statistics, there's plenty of teams professionally that are looking for people in their analytics departments. I don't know if that's (laughs) something you'd ever want to do. The pay is probably crap, but... Yeah, I would be wondering about, hey, I'm actually curious about that. It actually wouldn't be something I think I hate doing. I just, I'm like you, I'm wondering what the pay was like, you know. And you got to figure people who are really good statisticians, they are, they usually have PhDs kind of thing. So I'd hate to have a PhD in like mathematics or something and be making 50000 
<laughs> not to say fifty thousand dollars a year is bad, but I got a PhD for Pete's sake. I think I could do a little more, right? Me I mean, eventually, if you use it to work your way up to be like a general manager or something like that, or baseball operations, there's plenty of people that have MBA. Other people use it to move into maybe the CFO or COO sides, as opposed to just the, the on-field and, and front office stuff. Right. You know, they have to understand it. That general manager, they have to understand some of those statistics. You're absolutely right. The very, at least the, the most commonly used ones, they must understand them. Because you think about how many millions of dollars, hell, billions of dollars are spent on a difference of 1% in baseball. That is pretty deep. Yeah, just one little stinking percent, which in some cases might be statistically insignificant, but in baseball, that could be a home run. We talk about home runs or batting averages. Mm -hmm. A person hits home runs 1% more than their colleague, I bet you they're going to be getting a contract. And that could be the difference between paying for a guy who's going to be productive down the road or paying for Chris Davis, who had the statistically worst season in his career after signing a contract on a walk year. Some people have really good free agency walk years, as they call it, and end up making their money off of that and don't live up to those numbers ever again. That's exactly right. And then there's some people who maybe get better over time and exceed the numbers that they get. Just a little thing here. A tweak in their swing could turn somebody in, who is an average hitter into a monster or a Hall of Famer, especially in the post-steroid era. Right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. I'll agree with that 100%. As we wrap this up, I really want to thank you, and I will definitely have you back next time. We're going to go a little more pop culture game stuff. I know the math is a very tough part just for me just trying to, like, I understand some of this, but some of the calculations are just, Two out there. When you first started talking about sabermetrics with me a few years ago, I was thinking to myself, it's like, what kind of calculations are these? They can't be that complicated. And I started looking through and I was like, these people are doing some crazy math here a few places, you know. I mean, at the end of the day, it's mostly, you know, add, subtract, multiply, divide, but these equations are pretty long in some cases. And then, like, one of the elements then has its own equation to calculate. And it's like, then you have, you know, subsets of equations. And it's like, somebody stayed up all night thinking of this stuff. It's, you know, they must have had somebody that's good in math coming up with this. You know, I was very surprised about how in-depth it got and how, yeah, dense it was. So, don't feel bad. (laughs) Do you think it would be something that you could easily get a handle on with even just a year of experience or is it something that would take a lot more? If you're very math oriented, yeah, you could get it within a year. You would, as a math person, you know, you write things out, then you look at it and you look for the patterns, you know, kind of thing. If you're in tune with math, you'll see those naturally. If you're not math in tune, it's something you may never be able to fully wrap your head around kind of thing. So it just depends on the person and how valuable they think it is. If they really think it's valuable, they're going to, you know, I think, put more time and invest and really study it well, just like anything. Mark, I do appreciate it. How are some ways people can reach out to you and connect with you on different avenues? So on Facebook, I mean, you can look me up. You know, Earl knows you that I know that I'm going to trust you too, right? So the last name, you know, D-E-M-O-R-R-A. We talked about this. <laughs> There's not many Demoras out there. But otherwise, you know, I stream on Twitch quite a bit. And um, I'm on Twitter a bit, too. And I stream on Twitch. I like to, you know, we talked about the game shows and all that kind of thing. We didn't talk about video games at all. We need to talk about that at some point. And maybe have, you know, have a runoff on like RBI baseball or something like that. See so you can win. But um, I stream on Twitch under the name Coral Cola. So you can find me on there. Twitter, same thing. Coral Cola. It's from a video game. Nerdy stuff. Otherwise, find me on Facebook 
or Pat Earl send me a message, right? Earl knows where to find me, right? I think the next subject we should do, in addition to pop culture, we can talk about video games and esports, how now that's becoming classified as a thing. Yes. Oh, man. Some of the most popular stuff on Twitch these days are esports. Oh, my God. Madden. Madden will never go away. (laughs) Even though, despite how much people want it to go away, because it basically is a glorified roster update that people pay $60 a year for. Yeah, that's pretty much what it is. And maybe a slight graphics update, but maybe so small you can't even see it anymore. Remember when the new Maddens were released in the 90s? Everyone was, every was, you know, the graphics were a bit better. Like, whoa, this is the best it's ever been. These look awesome. I feel like I'm really playing it. And then now it's just like, looks exactly the same. You're right. The only thing that's different is the roster. <laughs> After a particular moment, it'll be great until they start focusing on the next gen. And then the next gen ones are going to get all the focus. And then the last gen ones aren't going to get anything at all. Right. And we're moving towards, of course, everything being downloadable. So you're not going to buy the game. They can just update rosters as they go. So they'll download it. You download the system and then you'll update the rosters every year. Or you'll pay 10 bucks or whatever it'll cost them, you know, to do that. So, yeah. I have a Madden 16 and I am not buying another game. I've got it really cheap. And I'm just waiting for somebody to take the time of their own to create the roster. And I'll just download it from there so I don't have to buy Madden 18 or Madden 19 or whatever year it is. You got it. Don't you have some rosters from some, like, don't you have classic O's rosters on there somewhere? Or not on that? Uh, MLB The Show 17, I believe. I got to look at it. MLB The Show, I created rosters, and I'm working on those. I haven't worked on those in a few months, but just trying to make the 1994 MLB rosters without, of course, Tampa Bay and Arizona. But those are still a work in progress. And I feel like once they're done, at least I'll have them in perpetuity. And then you can save. If you start a season with those, you can play it in any version after that. And then you can just basically upload those rosters, save it, import those players into the rosters, and then there you have them. Mm-hmm. And that's actually, as you said, that's a labor of love there as opposed to, you know, like anything else. It's because it's, I got to imagine that's time consuming as I'll get out. Oh, yeah, it is. I haven't even done it in months, but it's one of those things. Again, Mark, I do appreciate it and hopefully talk to you in definitely a few weeks to talk a little more about pop culture and video gaming. You got it. Anytime. Thank you for having me, Earl. I hope you enjoyed what I thought was an educational experience talking with Mark Demora, And I look forward to our next discussion in the future. Next week, I'll be interviewing Mikel Ramos, host of the sports podcast, Rolling with Ramos. We'll discuss what led to her interest in becoming a sports broadcaster, who some of her broadcasting influences and mentors are, as well as a brief look into what it's like being a fan of HBCU football. To listen to past interviews, go to thesportsrefuge.com or you can find the show on Google Play, Apple iTunes, CastBox, Acast, TuneIn, Blueberry, Podbean, and Stitcher Radio. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge Podcast. Tune in next time for more interviews on sports, pop culture, and everything in between. For more information on the show, go to the Sports Refuge website at www.thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. 